Chapter 16 of Jerry McCauley, His Life and Work by Jerry McCauley and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 16, Mr. Hatch's Recollections Concluded. Grace all the work shall crown through everlasting days. It lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. It would be difficult, if not altogether impossible, to so analyze Jerry's character or define the sources of his influence and success as to create out of them an available model upon which other regenerated roughs may be molded into future Jerry Macaulay's. His downright sincerity, his earnestness and singleness of purpose, his indomitable pluck and perseverance, and his devout piety are indeed alike worthy and susceptible of imitation by any man, whatever his past record may be, who yields himself up, as Jerry did, to the love and service of the Lord Jesus. Those peculiarities and distinctive traits which went to make up his personality cannot be portrayed like the well-defined lines and curves of a mathematical figure, to be copied and reproduced at will. The coming transformed rough or criminal, who shall set out to become by imitation a second Jerry Macaulay, will probably prove a lamentable and ludicrous failure he imitated no one he was himself inimitable he stands alone a unique example of the divine selection of material which in its rough state it is safe to say ninety-nine out of every hundred religious experts would have unhesitatingly rejected and of what may be wrought by the grace of god and the love of jesus out of and through the sort of stuff that jerry was made of it is alike impracticable to formulate his methods as a system or a plan of Christian work. He worked in his own way, in the only way in which it was possible for him to work, and in many respects as he alone could have worked successfully. He could not be pared down or rounded off or adjusted to any pattern set by another, or fitted to any conception that well-meaning friends may have entertained as to what he ought to be and do. He was Jerry Macaulay by the grace of God, and as such let us be thankful for him. His work, and that of the missions which bear his name and perpetuate his influence, and the undeniable success which even the severest critics of their direct and homely way of attacking sin and saving sinners have been compelled to recognize, have, however, given a new value to methods and instrumentalities which had previously been contemplated by many conservative and over-refined Christians with grave distrust, and in some cases even with undisguised contempt, and have imparted a new impulse to their use, in connection with missionary effort for the salvation of the lost and for the reclamation of those whom the more refined and stately ministrations of the pulpit have failed to reach. The holding of nightly meetings throughout the year without interruption or break, where men and women, burdened with sin, broken down and shattered by debauchery and vice, homeless and hopeless, hungry, ragged and defiled, drunk or sober, fresh from the prison or gutter, are welcomed, are made to feel that somebody cares for them and that their wretched past has not made decency and respectability in this life and salvation in the life to come impossible to them, and are taught that Jesus died for them and that God loves them. The direct, unconventional, blunt presentation of religious truth in language which is familiar to the classes to whom it is addressed and the force of which they can appreciate, the personal experiences and testimonies of those who have been saved, carrying practical conviction and hope to the hearts of others who are what the saved ones once were, and persuading them that there is salvation for them also, 
These are among the more prominent characteristics of Jerry's work which have been so signally honored and blessed of God to the salvation of many, and which have, through it, become more conspicuous features in missionary effort than ever before. This is especially true of the practical preaching of the gospel of salvation through the personal testimonies of the saved, and it has been found that just as the personal witness of a blind man whose eyes have been opened is a more effective advertisement of the skill of the physician who opened them to send other blind men to him, than a whole volume of essays on the theory of blindness and its cure, so than sincere and simple declaration, I was a drunkard, a gambler, a thief, homeless, ragged, despised, and outcast, and Jesus picked me up and saved me, and has made me respectable and happy, filled my soul with peace, and opened to me the gates of paradise, has infinitely more power to attract the faith of others in like wretchedness and despair to the Jesus who has done all this than a whole library of sermons on the nature of sin and the theology of the plan of salvation. Multitudes of Christians have felt their pride of culture humbled, their refinements of taste and respect to religious methods rebuked, and their sense of power of the divine grace and of the superiority of infinite wisdom over human judgment in the selection and use of means lifted up higher, as they have seen in Jerry's meetings, how God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and the weak things to confound the mighty, and the base things and the things which are despised, that no flesh should glory in his presence, and have learned in humiliation and shame for their past fastidiousness, that it ill becomes human frailty to despise or criticize or hold in light esteem that which God has honored and dignified. In explanation of many of the testimonies which are heard in these mission meetings, the following extracts from a report of an address delivered by the writer of these notes at an anniversary of the Macaulay Water Street Mission five or six years ago may not be out of place. The experience and observation of the intervening years in intimate connection with work of this kind has in no wise changed or modified the views then expressed. Although the testimonies given in these meetings are well understood by those who are familiar with them, and with the personal histories of those who utter them, occasional visitors from an entirely different condition in life, and accustomed to quite another phase of religious experience, may sometimes misapprehend them and question the genuineness of the spiritual experiences of which they are the expression. It is difficult for Christians whose position and circumstances in life when converted were those of respectability and comfort to realize that all religion, salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, means to many of these people whose testimonies are to be heard here. While it means to them the same cleansing from sin, the same inward peace, the same hope of heaven, than it means to others, it means to many of them, in addition to all this, and much more besides. To many of them it means not only reconciliation to God, but also reconciliation to human laws and to human society. To some of them it means no more fear of the policeman's grip or the detective's stealthy tread no more dread of the prison and the gallows, no more weeks in the tombs, no more months on Blackwell's Island, no more dreary years at Sing Sing or Auburn. To them it means an honest life, the confidence and trust of their fellow men, liberty to walk upright in broad day, unhunted and without a price upon their heads, and the sweetness of eating in fearless security the bread of honest toil. To many others it means no more dreadful carousals in beastly drunkenness, no more bruised and aching heads, no more smashed crockery and mutilated furniture, a wife broken-hearted no more, and their children fleeing from them no more in terror. It means no more journeys to the pawn shop, no more homeless wanderings in the streets by day, no more sleepless nights in station houses or in dirty dens or on the docks or in the gutters. 
To these men and women, salvation means decent clothing instead of rags, cleanliness instead of dirt and vermin. It means parents reconciled, home restored, wife and children happy and smiling. It means food and raiment and employment and friends and self-respect and everything else that makes human life comfortable and happy. We need not wonder, therefore, that in attempting to tell what Jesus has done for them, they speak of these things. Good Christian people, coming as visitors to these meetings and hearing these testimonies but once, or only at long intervals, are sometimes disturbed with the fear that these men and women are not soundly converted. Hearing them in the fullness of their gratitude and in the warmth of their love tell of the homes, the friends, the food, the clothing, the good wages, and the comforts of life which the service of God has brought to them, the stranger may sometimes say, Why, these people seem to value salvation only for the material comforts and rewards which it brings to them. We who know them and hear them often know better than this. When they speak here, they are limited in their testimonies to one minute, in order that as many possible may have an opportunity to speak at each meeting. A man cannot tell all that he feels and knows of the love of God and of the blessings of salvation in one minute. One has to hear them ten, twenty, fifty times before all that they have to tell of the goodness of God and the happiness of serving their newfound master and redeemer comes out. I have heard some of them testify a hundred times, and each time have found that not half the story of their redemption had yet been told. And we who have heard their testimonies most frequently, and know their hearts and their lives best, have found that those who have the most grateful sense of the present blessings and material benefits which the love and service of Jesus have brought into their lives, and who speak first and often of these things, have also the strongest faith in God, the sweetest experiences of inward peace and spiritual communion with Him, and the brightest and most steadfast hope of eternal life. These testimonies show that if there is one truth of the gospel more clearly illustrated in the experiences of the people converted in this mission than another, it is that godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. To the poor, wretched, homeless wrecks of body and soul that drift into the meetings, the truth is preached in every testimony. It pays in this life to serve Jesus. It is of but little use to preach this truth to the well-to-do sinner surrounded by wealth, friends, and all the comforts of life. He thinks that he already has the promise of the life that now is. Salvation means to him self-sacrifice, a surrender of some of the riches, pleasures, and self-indulgences in which he revels. To move him to repentance and godliness, you must appeal to his conscience and his duty to his maker, and must turn the current of his thoughts to that life which is to come. But to many of the outcasts who wander into these meetings, there is little need to preach of a heaven and a hell hereafter. For when they come in sorrow and penitence to the Lord Jesus, and surrender themselves to him, they are fleeing from a present hell on earth. And when they are converted, a heaven begins to them right here and now. Their most frequent thoughts and expressions, therefore, are not so much about the penalties of sin and the rewards of righteousness in the life to come, as about this truth, which has been revealed to them, that godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is. To them, the dividing line in human existence is not so much the grave separating between time and eternity, as it is the hour in which they were lifted up out of a visible hell on earth, into what is to them a present heaven and began to enjoy the promise of the life that now is. Afterward, when they have come to realize the terrible abyss of eternal woe from which the blood of Jesus has redeemed them, and their hearts begin to take in some conception of the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, 
Then their faith lifts itself up and takes hold on eternal realities, and they learn the higher strains of the song of redemption. But they never cease to remember and to testify that it is Jesus who, in saving them from sin now, has saved them from the wretchedness and shame which sin had brought into their lives. The preparation of the foregoing sketch has been a labor of love. Its purpose, however, has not been merely to encircle the head of Jerry Macaulay with a glory, after the manner of the old masters in adorning their canvas with saintly figures, nor to throw a halo of romantic interest around his life and work, but rather to seek to bring into stronger light, if possible, some of the practical lessons which they suggest. If it shall reawaken in the heart of any lost and despairing sinner, hopes long overlaid with sin and buried out of sight and consciousness under the wreckage of a reckless and debauched life, or if it shall give an encouraging impulse to any, who having been born into the kingdom of God out of the rough places in life without education or previous Christian training, and burdened with a sense of their lack of those requirements which go to make up a conventional outfit for usefulness, are sorrowfully asking, What can I do for Jesus? Or if it shall serve to stimulate any of the Christian men or women into whose hands the providence of God may bring it, to more believing in earnest work for the salvation of those whom, perhaps, they have hitherto considered beyond hope, its highest aim will have been fulfilled. A.S.H. End of chapter 16